And uh, anybody watching in our cafe, thanks for joining us there. Uh, Man, this video that you just saw, for those of you who don't know, one of our values here at Westbridge is that we want to leave a legacy that outlives our lives. So we talk about this uh, occasionally. We talk about it in what we call five and five, five things about Westbridge Church in five minutes or less. Uh, We do that after every service. But one of the things is the story of Westbridge isn't a story about us. It's a story about Jesus. And the story of Jesus lives on long after our lives have come to an end here on earth. And so we continually invest in things that have an eternal impact. And one of those things is Change 30. And the Change 30 organization is in Russia. And the reason it's called Change 30 is because the average lifespan of a Russian orphan is 30 years old. And so they are determining how do we change that number? We want to change 30. We want to make that number higher. We want to to make it so that Russian orphans can live longer, have a healthy life, can come to know Jesus, and uh, and really develop life skills, learn how to live on their own. And so uh, we've been partnering with this organization for the last several years. And and you may not know this, but we take 10% of everything that's given to Westbridge Church, and we give it away to global partners. And we do that right off the top because we just believe that God's entrusted it to us so that we can be generous and, and make a difference here in this world. And so this is one of our global partners. We just wanted to, to hear, we wanted you to hear from them directly uh, how your money and your generosity is making an impact. So thanks for being such a generous church. Uh, we couldn't do what we do without you. Uh, the other thing I want to say is this, Easter is coming up. I know that's crazy, but um, it's crazy to think about, but we're only seven weeks away from Easter, eight weeks away from Easter. And um, we're doing something every year. We kind of, uh, for the last couple of years, have gone through a Lenten devotional. Now, if you don't know what Lent is, it's a season where uh, on Wednesday, people's foreheads get dirty and everybody eats fish on Fridays. That's what it is, okay? That's what I knew about it growing up. I was like, I don't know, because they got like a, they have a, their forehead got really dirty and they're all eating fish on Friday. I don't get it, but, uh, but I've come to understand Lent simply means it, 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 it's a word for spring. It, it's a word for, uh, and really they used it to talk about renewal, to, to kind of like renew our minds and, and in the spring, it's like things come to life again. And the idea is that you would take a season leading up to Easter and you would intentionally kind of focus in on like, okay, some habits and some practices that help put my focus on Jesus. And so um, for the last couple of years, we've done a Lenten devotional. And all this is is a simple, it's a, it's a little bit of a daily reading and a daily prayer that you can participate in and follow along with us. To find that, all you have to do is go to westbridgechurch.com forward slash Easter, or you can find it on the Church Center app on your dashboard, and you can subscribe. And once you subscribe, put in your name and email, you'll get an email every day through the Lent season with a simple reading and a prayer. And then you can follow along uh, just doing that Lenten devotional through this season. It's a great time to kind of focus our energy and our attention around that. The other thing I got to mention is this, and then we'll jump into the talk. Uh, We're doing seven Easter services. So (laughs) here's what I need you to do. Go to westbridgechurch.com forward slash Easter and register for what service you want to go to. We did this at Christmas Eve. It's very helpful for us to know who's coming when because we can only seat so many people here. We had over 2,600 people at Christmas Eve and this auditorium seats like 470. So as you can imagine, we need to know who's coming when just to make sure that we can do kids. Uh, We're doing students. We're doing full, seven full services at Easter. And every year, our Easter services are typically about 20 to 25% larger than Christmas Eve. So it would just be so helpful. And if you want to get a seat at a service that you want to be at, uh, you're like, this is the service I want to go to, then I would encourage you to lock that in and uh, register. You got seven weeks to do it. and, uh, And then invite a friend. 
There are people who will say yes to going to church on Easter that might never go during another time of the year. And they'll say yes on Easter because it's Easter. So invite them. We've got a great message that we want to share on that day. All right. So all that to say, we're starting a brand new series today called The Rest of the Story. And this is a message, really a series that we're going to walk through for the next several weeks. And to, to kind of kick us off, we, we look back at uh, the time that Jesus was here on earth, and, and there's this story, there's this moment where he's teaching, and he's teaching, uh, and he finds himself in a sort of a debate with the religious leaders, and it's a group of religious leaders who are called Sadducees. And the reason that they're, uh, not the reason they're called this, but they're, they're called Sadducees, one of their belief systems is that they don't believe in life after death. They don't believe that you're just here on this planet, you're here for the time you're here, and then you're done. And that's why they're sad, you see. And so that's their, they're called Sadducees. And Jesus had just finished debating them. And I can't even imagine trying to debate Jesus. Like, it's like he just would thwart their efforts every time. And they'd be like, well, what about this? And he's like, he'd answer their questions with questions. And they'd always be in this conundrum. And then he'd just walk away. And they're all, like, bewildered. And it's just like, I wouldn't even try to debate Jesus. But they're always trying to debate Jesus. And on one particular occasion, one of them is listening to Jesus's debate. And he's debating about life after death with the Sadducees. And, and he's so impressed by Jesus's answer. He's so impressed by Jesus's response that he kind of ventures out and says, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask Jesus another question. And it's possible that he even kind of outs himself, that he's never been able to talk about this before because of the group that he belongs to. But he sees an opportunity and he asks Jesus, he says, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Now, this is a great question. It's a question of priorities, but it's a loaded question because for people living in the first century who were Jewish, they followed the law of Moses. And the law of Moses has over 600 laws that they are supposed to follow so they can stay in right standing with God. And so it's kind of a loaded question. But, but basically he's saying this, when values collide, you got to prioritize something. You, you can't have 600 things all have the same priority, Right? And you know this in your own life. When you face a, a, a situation or a season where values collide, you have to determine what's most important in your life. Sometimes things have to drop off and you have to prioritize certain things. And so this is a question of priorities. He's saying, Jesus, what's the most important? And Jesus responds by reaching back into the Jewish law, the law of Moses, and, and he's quoting from the law of Moses something that they would have all known. Because if you were, again, in the first century a Jewish person, you would have memorized the Torah or the law of Moses from an early age. And so he reaches back and he quotes something. And this would have been, if you were a rabbi, this would have been the, the rote Sunday school answer. And so here's what Jesus says. The most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And they go, yeah, I know. Okay, we got that. We, we've memorized that since we were kids. That's Okay, that's the Sunday school answer. You, yep, got it, Jesus. But then Jesus goes off script. And then Jesus takes another command from the law of Moses, and he pairs it together with this command in a way that had never been done before up to this point. So they think like, okay, well, okay, you gave us the one most important command, but Jesus continues and he says this, and the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, nobody had ever heard these two things paired together in this way. And Jesus says there's a second one, but it's not second in terms of, uh, it's, it's second in terms of sequence. It's not second in terms of importance. He's saying both of these together, you asked me for one command and I gave you two, but the two make up the one. They're going, wait a second. That's two, Jesus. He goes, yeah, but 
it's equally as important. And then he would say this. He would say, no other commandment, singular, is greater than these, plural. It's like, all right, that's confusing. No other commandment, singular, is greater than these. No other commandment. The religious leader who, who Jesus is talking to, he doesn't realize that he's talking to Jesus, who is, you know, the son of God, big deal. So he just, he's kind of like, oh, that's good. That's a good answer. And he, he thinks Jesus has done a pretty good job, and he sees Jesus as his peer. Hey, we're both rabbis in this first century uh, Jewish culture. And so he responds. The teacher of religious law replied, well said, teacher. He just sees Jesus as an equal. Jesus is like, yeah, I know. Like, I'm Jesus. <laughs> You've spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. And this teacher, has already, he's already thinking the way that Jesus thinks. And maybe he's never come across somebody. Maybe he's had to hide that. And now he's kind of outing himself a little bit and going, I've actually embraced that same value system, Jesus. And Jesus realizes that he's uh, sincere. And he realizes this guy understands more than a lot of the other people around him understand. And so uh, Mark tells us that realizing... Realizing how much the man understood, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. He looks at the man. I don't know if he says it in the crowd or if he kind of pulls him close. I could imagine him pulling him going, hey, you are not far from the kingdom of God, which means the kingdom of God is not far from you. The kingdom of God is not far from you. And the kingdom of God is not far from us. So starting today, and for the next several weeks leading up to Easter, I want to tell you a true story. It's a story that should have died in Rome in the first century with Nero. It should have died when Nero became emperor and he started to arrest and he started to persecute and he started to execute followers of the way of Jesus. And yet for some reason, this story survived. And it's a story that is narrated by Simon Peter. Simon Peter was one of Jesus' closest friends, and he followed Jesus for three years. And then for 30 more years, he travels around and he tells his story. And it is an embarrassing story for Peter. It's a story where Peter denies that he knew Jesus. It's a story where Peter fails Jesus again and again and says some wild things, and yet he continues to tell the story because he recognizes my story is part of a greater story. My, my story is a part of an even bigger story, the story of Jesus of Nazareth. And so Peter followed Jesus for three years, and then for the next 30 years, he travels around. He's been arrested, he's been beaten, he's escaped prison, now he's arrested again, and, and he's sitting here and he's going, I gotta tell my story. And like everywhere he would travel, people would stop Peter because they knew, he, he knew Jesus. He had seen Jesus, he'd, he'd been with him for three years. And they'd go, hey, we've heard some of the stories. Tell us about the time when. Tell us about the time when he said this. Tell us about the time when he did this. And Peter would tell the stories again and again and again. And now he finds himself in prison and he's narrating this story one last time, but not to a group of people. He's telling his story specifically to John Mark. And John Mark is a, a traveling companion of Peter's. And Peter is now in his 50s. And he's probably in prison. He's in, he's in prison. He's been arrested by Nero. And we don't know if he's under house arrest or if he's in a prison cell, but this is the story of Peter. He's documenting the story of Jesus, and now he's in prison, and he's an uneducated man. And so it's very unlikely that he would have known how to read or write. 
possible that he picked up learning to read a little bit, but definitely would not have known how to write. As a fisherman, uh, he wouldn't have had the time or the expensive materials to learn how to write. And so he's, he, he's getting to the end of his life. He knows, I'm probably not going to make it out of this prison cell. And he tells his story to Mark. And, and so this comes to us. Now, we read it in our modern-day Bible as the, the gospel of Mark or the book of Mark. And, and Mark knows this isn't just a story for one person. This is a story for generations, and so he's, he's getting it down. And Mark traveled with Peter, and they're in Rome together. And Peter tells his story one last time. And it's, it's a, if you read it, if you read Mark, and I'd encourage you to read it, you know, leading up to Easter, it's crazy. It's chaotic. It's all out of order. It's just like dropping one story after another. It's like Peter just wants to download, oh, yeah, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And Mark's just like trying to get it all down as fast as he can. And it's just kind of crazy one story after the other. And Mark goes, I just want to get this down so that the next generation can, can read about this from the lips of someone who was with Jesus. And Peter begins his account basically with his conclusion. It's almost like Peter says this. It's like, life is uncertain, so let's start with dessert. So he gives it to us right up front. And here's what I want us to do through this next several weeks. No matter where you've been, no matter where you're coming from, no matter what your experience with church faith, religion, God, whatever that has been, whatever your experience with the Bible. I want us to look at this as we read these verses, not as, hey, we're reading the Bible. Because when Peter was telling these stories to Mark, Mark was not going, all right, let's write the Bible. Mark didn't think about this like the Bible. Peter didn't think, oh, this is the Bible. They didn't realize like 2,000 years later, we'd be reading these stories. This is just the account of two men who are in a prison and one who had traveled with Jesus and he wants to tell his stories one last time and document them. It's the experience of someone in the first century who traveled with Jesus for three years and then told these stories for the next 30 years. And that means that there are parts of this story where we're going to read it and we're going to go through it and we go, Peter, really? Like, really? You expect us to believe that? And Peter would say, this isn't something I read about. This isn't something that somebody told me about. This is what I saw with my own eyes. This is what I experienced. And he launches into it, and he would say it right out of the gate, right? Mark 1, verse 1, this is what he says. He says, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. He goes, you want to know who Jesus is? He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God. And we'd go, man, Peter, how can you be sure that Jesus is the Messiah? How can you be sure he's the son of God? How, how can you be sure that you weren't wrong, that you didn't miss it, that you haven't given your life for nothing? How can you be sure this wasn't a waste? And I think Peter would probably just smile because his faith isn't rooted in doctrines. It's not rooted in some kind of theological belief system or some kind of checklist that he made sure that he believes all the right things. His faith is rooted in his experience. He would say, I traveled with Jesus. I mean, I saw the things that he did. And I'm telling you, I saw with my own eyes. In fact, he would write a letter a few years before this time with Mark. He would write a letter, a couple of letters to followers of Jesus in the first century. And in his first letter, he would say, here's what I saw. When Jesus was arrested, when Jesus was uh, uh, taken into, you know, as a prisoner and, and brought before Pilate, I mean, here's what I saw. He didn't retaliate when he was insulted. I saw this from Jesus, nor threatened revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God who always judges fairly. Peter would say, when Jesus was arrested, I resisted his arrest. He didn't resist his arrest. I resisted his arrest. 
But he just entrusted himself to God. It was like he just put himself into the hands of his heavenly father. And he wasn't worried. I've never seen anything like this before. And even though I didn't understand it at the time, I came to realize that this is the fulfillment. Jesus was the fulfillment of what the prophets told us so long ago. He said, uh, as I saw him and, and we saw him put to death, he would say this, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross. And Peter would say, one of the things that was so difficult about following Jesus was all the people Jesus invited to follow him. He kept inviting all these people to follow him. And we weren't like a really close-knit group of guys that all thought the same way and had the same upbringing. Like it was a, a wide variety of people. And he would ask people to follow him, and I'd be like, why are you asking that person to follow you? They're a sinner. And he just, Peter would say, I, I thought I was better than them. And when Jesus died, I came to realize, no, he didn't just carry in his body on the cross the sins of everyone. He carried my sins. I realized I'm a sinner, and he carried my sins. And I'm sure he's the son of God, because here's what I've experienced over these last 30 years. Peter would write this. He says, in his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Peter would say, yes, I'm sure. I saw him die. And I, and I went to the tomb and I looked inside and saw an empty tomb. And then I saw him alive again. And I ate with him. And I had many conversations with him after he rose from the dead. And I'm just telling you, for the last 30 years, I've shared my story. And I've become more and more and more and more convinced of what I've seen and what I've experienced. And people are now starting to gather in cities and in villages and in communities all over the Roman Empire. And people from different backgrounds, Jew and Gentile and slave and free and people with different religious backgrounds and different upbringings and different socioeconomic status. They're all gathering together in, in different places, in different communities and villages and cities all over the Roman Empire. And they're worshiping this risen Jesus. Peter would say, yeah, I'm sure. I've never been more convinced. In fact, I give my life for it. And these people are experiencing what I experienced so long ago, a new birth into a living hope. And so Peter is just going to jump into the story that he experienced with Jesus. He just jumps in and he starts telling stories. And before we read these verses, here's something that we have to understand because we come to the scriptures with a little bit of a modern Western lens, which isn't a bad thing. It's, it's where we are in human history. But here's what we tend to look for when we go to the scriptures and when we read you know, some of the verses that we find in the scriptures. We look for application. We're going, okay, how do I take this and apply it to my life today and find, find wisdom from the scriptures and apply it to my life today? And that's good, and we should do that. And sometimes we look for inspiration. And inspiration is like, I'm going through a difficult season, and so, God, I need you to give me courage. I want to see something fresh. I need your peace to surround me. And those are good things. Sometimes we read it specifically for direction. I need to know, God, I'm at a fork in the road. I need to know what you want me to do here. And so I'm going to try to get some, some kind of principle or command or example that I can follow so that I can move my life in that direction. And none of those are bad things. Those are good things. We should look for application. We should look for inspiration. We should look for direction in the scriptures. But often the stories that we pull direction and inspiration and application from are stories here and stories there that are a part of a bigger picture. They're a part of something bigger. They're the puzzle pieces that fit into a bigger picture. And when Peter begins his narrative, he wants to make sure we understand the big idea. So it's like he pulls out the box that the puzzle came in, and he's like, here's what it's going to look like at the end. Once we get all the pieces fit together, this is the end result. This is what it's going to look like. Now, when I think about what that end result looks like, that big idea, 
I feel like I have it locked in pretty good. I, I thought I knew what it was when I was growing up. I grew up in church world, which means my dad was a pastor, my grandpa was a pastor, my great-grandpa was a pastor. It's like a family business, right? And, and so I just, I grew up around like church and church world and all that kind of stuff. Now, if you, no matter where you're coming from, if you grew up with a different religious background, if you grew up in a different church setting, or maybe you don't have any previous faith background at all, and you're kind of exploring this thing, I can tell you for me growing up, and maybe this has been your experience, for me growing up, this is what I thought the message was. This is what I thought like the, the big idea was. Jesus died for my sins. If I put my trust in him, I can go to heaven when I die. And until then, in the meantime, be a good boy. Right? That Jesus died for my sins. Uh, if I trust him, I can go to heaven when I die. And in the meantime, be a good husband. In the meantime, be a good dad. In the meantime, uh, be a good friend. Be a good worker. Be a good you know, employee. Be, just be a good person. Jesus died for my sins. I can go to heaven when I die. In the meantime, behave yourself. And it, it's amazing that if we would have said that to Peter, I think he would look at us and go, you're crazy. Not because it's not true, but because that's not the point. In fact, Peter would say, let me give you the big idea right up front. Yes, there's an eternal component to this. And, and yes, Jesus died for your sins. And yes, you can experience heaven when you die. But there's something for you here and now. And if you miss that, then you've missed a huge part of why Jesus came. You can live every single part of your, every single part of your life here and now with this one assurance. God is near primarily we think in terms of this. Uh, if I follow Jesus, it's the, it's the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven when I die. It's like, okay, check those lists. Now when I die, I can get to heaven. The message of Jesus was not primarily about you and I getting to heaven. The message of Jesus is primarily about heaven getting into us. It is primarily that heaven came to earth, that God has come near, and you can live with that assurance. And so Peter's telling his story, and he continues, and he just says this. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee, where he preached God's good news. He's like, everywhere we went, it's just, he just had good news. We traveled up to Galilee, where, where uh, Peter is from, and he was a fisherman around the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is traveling all up the Jordan River, and he gets to Galilee, and he goes everywhere he went. Everywhere he went, he just proclaimed this good news. Everything. Now, what's the good news? Well, Jesus died for my sins, and if I were behave well, I can go to heaven when I die. Well, that's not, that wasn't the message Jesus shared because that hadn't even happened yet. He hadn't, he hadn't died yet. In fact, the death and resurrection of Jesus is really just the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. It's just what punctuates everything he taught when he was here. What he taught while he was here on earth was to impact us here on earth because God is near. So here's the good news that Jesus would proclaim. He would say this. He'd, he'd travel all over and say, the time promised by God has come at last, he announced. Everything in the Jewish, first century Jewish culture, they were waiting for a promise to be fulfilled. And generations would come and generations would go and they're waiting for the fulfillment of a specific promise that God would send someone into the world that would redeem them, that would restore relationship with God. And, and through that relationship with God, their relationships with each other would be restored. <laughs> and they're waiting on this promise. And Jesus says, here's the good news. The time has come. He continues, he says, the kingdom of God is near. 
The kingdom of God is near. God's kingship, his, his rule, his right to rule. The kingdom is near because the king has arrived. This thing you've been waiting for, wait no more. And it's not something that you're supposed to look forward to in the future. It's here now. You can experience it today. And wherever the king goes, the kingdom goes with him. To which Peter would have said, what are you talking about, Jesus? The first time we heard this, Peter would say, we didn't understand what he was talking about. Because we all knew what a kingdom was. The kingdom of Rome was here for sure. We We had thought at one point that the kingdom of God was the kingdom of Israel. But as we look at Israel... From our vantage point, we hadn't been a kingdom in hundreds of years. So we don't know what Jesus is talking about. And and very quickly, we started to understand he's talking about a kingdom that is completely different, that doesn't operate the way that the kingdoms of this world operate. He wasn't talking about a future event. It wasn't something that we were supposed to look forward to and hope for. He was saying, no, the future is now. The kingdom has come. And it's a kingdom without borders. It's a kingdom without a common language, a kingdom without a common ancestry. It is a kingdom, Peter would say, we came to find out it's a kingdom of the heart. It's a kingdom of conscience. And it's a kingdom of conscience informed by the teachings of a king who had come to reverse the order of just about everything. And over and over again, we would pull Jesus aside and we'd say, what are you talking about? What does that mean? Surely that can't be true because we'd all grown up with an understanding of what a kingdom is and what a king does. And now Jesus is introducing a different kind of kingdom and a totally different kind of king, a kingdom that is now because the king had come. So the kingdom is here. The kingdom is with us. It was a kingdom, as Jesus would let this religious leader know in the very beginning, that was prioritized by loving God and loving others. That's not the way the kingdoms of this world operate. The kingdoms of this world operate through force. Whoever carries the biggest stick, whoever has the biggest army, we invade. We do whatever we need to do to preserve what we've built. And into this culture, I mean, specifically in the first century culture, that was definitely the way the world worked. The Roman Empire had the biggest army, so they ruled the world. And into this culture, Jesus says, no, there's a, there's a new kingdom because the king has come. And I'm telling you, this is the priority of this kingdom. We're going to love God and we're going to love others. And Peter would say, this is the picture into which all the pieces fit. This is, this is the big idea, that we get to be a part of it here and now, including this final piece of the picture, which is the death of this king. That, that this king would actually lay down his life for his subjects rather than demand that his subjects lay down their lives for him. The arrival of Jesus was the beginning of something brand new. The old was passing away and the new has come. So much so that even in his final supper with his disciples, Jesus would use language that they would understand. See, all of the nation of Israel had this covenant with God. It was this agreement with God. If we do this, you'll be our God, we'll be your people. And they knew this was the covenant. And so Jesus is at his last supper with his disciples, and he says, I'm going to be put to death. And it's like, it's like my blood, when that's spilled, is going to be like a symbol of a brand new covenant. The old one's done away. That one was a covenant between God and, and one nation, Israel. But he's saying, no, no, that's going to be obsolete. There's going to be a whole new covenant. But this one is with God and all of humanity. And Peter would say, it's like we saw signs of that throughout our time with Jesus because everywhere we went, he would throw open the gates and he just kept inviting all kinds of people to follow him. That's good news. 
It means no matter where you're coming from, no matter what you've done, you're invited to participate in the kingdom of heaven here and now. That's good news. But here's where the rubber meets the road. To participate in this new kingdom, it requires something of us. And there are two commands that Jesus would say everywhere that he went. He'd say, there's good news. The kingdom of God is near. There's good news. The kingdom of God is near. The thing you've been waiting for, the promise you've been waiting for, it's finally come true. The kingdom of God is near because the king has come. And then he would say two things. And these two commands are are basically, this is what it looks like to participate in this kingdom. And the whole message of Jesus could be boiled down to these two commands that's found in this one statement. He would continue and say, the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Now, this word repent literally means to turn in a different direction. I'm living my life this way, so now I need to turn and start moving this direction. And Jesus would say this, you've got to turn. Look, I want you to change your way of thinking. I want you to change your worldview. I want you to turn in a different direction. I don't want you to, to think about kingdoms the way you've always thought about kingdoms. I don't want you to think about your life the way you've always thought about your life. I want you to think completely differently. I want you to embrace a whole new worldview. I want you to embrace a whole new way of thinking. I want you to turn in the direction of a brand new kingdom with a brand new kind of king that is establishing itself on planet earth because you've been invited to participate in it. And until you change your mind and until you change your worldview, until you embrace this, you're going to miss it. Embrace this radical new way of viewing the world. Embrace this radical new way of viewing yourself. Embrace this radical new way of experiencing God. Embrace these brand new priorities of loving God and loving others. Embrace that. Embrace this priority because the kingdom of God is near and you're not far from it if you can embrace that. And then he would say this. Secondly, believe. I, I want you to believe. And when he says believe the good news... It's not just believe that it happened, right? It means to entrust yourself to it. It means to give yourself to it, surrender yourself to it. Jesus would say, I want you to fully surrender and submit your life to this new worldview and this brand new kingdom led by a brand new king. Because faith is not an intellectual construct. In our modern world, we make faith an intellectual thing. I believe this, I believe this, I believe this, I call that faith. For followers of Jesus, faith is a relational construct. It's not intellectual. It's not just a, a, an acknowledgement that. It's saying, no, I, I'm putting my trust in someone. It's the same type of faith that you have in a marriage relationship where you put your trust in one another. That's faith, but that's not faith as an intellectual construct. That's faith as a relational construct. And this is the type of faith we have with Jesus in this new kingdom. Jesus says, I want you to repent. I want you to turn toward me and my way of thinking. And then I want you to believe. Uh, Not just that that the kingdom of God is here, but, but entrust yourself to it. Surrender yourself to it. Participate in it. And in our culture, uh, we tend to think that that means we give up what we want. But in the original context, it means Jesus gives us what we need. Faith at its simplest is this. God, I trust you enough to do what you ask me to do. And here's what became so painfully and abundantly clear to Peter and for those first century followers. This is what would be the lens through which Peter would tell the rest of his story for the rest of his years. He would say, you want to know the good news of God's kingdom? You want to know what it is? The good news of God's kingdom, if I could boil it down to one thing, it would be this. Everybody 
is invited to participate in it. He would say, you, you want to know what makes this kingdom so different than other kingdoms? You want to know what makes this kingdom so wildly different than any other kingdom you've ever been a part of? This good news, this might be the best news for you, depending on where you're at in your life, what's going on in your life right now. Everybody's invited to participate in God's kingdom. God's kingdom has come near, and you don't have to wait until you get to heaven to experience it. That's good news. And I don't know what kind of religious background you're coming from. I don't know what your experience with church has been. I don't know what your experience with faith has been, what your experience with quote-unquote church people has been. I don't know what your experience has been with guys like me. But I can tell you this. (laughs) Obviously, I don't know what version of Christianity you were raised in, or if any at all. But as you know, there are multiple different versions and approaches to this thing called Christianity. And here's what Peter, who spent time with Jesus and spent 30 years living it out, would have you know. The arrival of Jesus into our world, if it was anything at all, it was good news. It was good news. And so if your version of Christianity is not good news, you probably don't have the right version. If your version of Christianity is not good news, you didn't have Peter's version. In fact, if your version of Christianity was such not good news that you needed to leave it a long time ago, or maybe you left it recently and you're just circling back trying to find a little bit of hope, my hunch is Peter would say this, if it was that easy to leave, if it was that easy to walk away from, if it was that easy to stop believing, you probably didn't have the version that I have. Peter would say, let me give you, let me, let me have one opportunity to share my version with you because it's not something I heard about. It's something I witnessed and experienced. And the reason Peter would say it's such good news is because God came near, which means you and I are never that far away. God came to establish something in the here and now. And whether you recognize it or not, you are not far from it. And here's, here's what we tend to do as human beings. I do the same thing. Every one of us, we look at what we've done. We look at our past. We look at times we've walked away. We look at things that we've said. We look at thoughts that we've had. And we go, I'm just, I'm too far away. Surely God isn't pleased with me. Surely God can't use me. Surely, surely God's done with me. I mean, I, I'm just too far away. And the message over and over and over again, Jesus would say, no, the kingdom of God is near. And you're not far from it. That's good news. And everybody's invited to participate in it. And if you've got doubts, Peter would say, me too. I got a lot of doubts. I asked Jesus a lot of questions along the way. And if you ever walked away, Peter would say, oh, me too. I walked away. Eh. But man, then I experienced the mercy and grace and forgiveness of a king whose kingdom priority was to love God and love people. And it was such good news. And for the last 30 years, even though I've been arrested, even though I've been beaten, even though I've been arrested again, and I probably won't make it out alive, I can't imagine giving my life to anything else. This is such good news. And the question for you and the question for me is, will we lean in? Will we embrace this kingdom? Will we, will we continue to look at it as, well, these are the minimum entrance requirements to get into heaven when I die, so I better behave because then me and God are good and hopefully I can make it there? Or will we embrace the kingdom values of love God and love others? Will we turn from our current way of thinking? Will we repent of our sins and go, no, God, I I fully entrust myself to you and your way of living? That's good news. And God's kingdom has come near because the king has come near. And then he invites you and I to participate in it, not just when we die, 
but here and now. And if you've never said yes to that invitation, I want to invite you to say yes. Jesus would use these words. No greater love has anyone than someone who lays down his life for their friends. And then Jesus would allow himself to be put to death and his body would be laid in a tomb. And according to multiple eyewitness accounts, hundreds of people saw Jesus alive and Peter was one of them. He would say, I saw that empty tomb and then I talked with Jesus and I ate with Jesus and I had many conversations with Jesus after he rose from the dead. And here's what that means. This is a kingdom where death is not the end. And you and I have been invited. And you don't earn your way in. You don't behave your way in. It's just the God who created the world and who loves you, created you, has invited you to be a part of his family. And that's good news. And if you've never said yes to that, I want to invite you to say yes. Just agree with this prayer. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. But I'm so grateful that you never walk away from me. I'm never that far away. I'm only ever always one step back to you. Today, I want to take that step. I want to say, yes, make me your son, make me your daughter, and help me to put my trust in you and follow you as best as I know how from this moment on. And God, I pray for every one of us as we embrace the, the values of your kingdom, the kingdom of the heart, the kingdom of conscience. God, may we prioritize loving you and loving others well. And in doing that, may our lives point people to the good news of Jesus. I pray this in your name. Amen.